Let's pray together. In the quietness of this moment, would you ask the Lord this morning to speak to your heart? I'm sure he already has in many ways through the worship. But now as we open up God's word, would you say, God, what would you have me to do? And God, what would you want me to feel? Change the way I think. Show me in your word. Father, we do ask you to do a great work in our life this morning. And we'll trust you with it. And we'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. This um, comes not only to our members, our guests, and anyone else is here from out of town. And I just want to ask you one question. Uh, why are you miserable? Now, that's an encouraging word right off the bat, right? Man, you came all the way from out of town, all the way from Tennessee, New York, visit your kids and hear that. You know, why, you know we know, uh, being honest about it, we know there's a misery index in life. We have certain expectations in life. Those expectations aren't met, and we sort of get miserable about it. In fact, there's a minute, really a misery gap sometimes in the Christian life, and that is from the joy the Bible says we ought to be feeling to act the way we actually feel. Now, do I have an amen? Amen. amen. Three of you are willing to admit that. Transparency, that's what we like around here. Well, we, uh, we know that the Psalms are full of encouragement, and they're really the favorite book to read for everyone. They're just filled with encouragement. We want encouraging messages. I find myself when I'm on television, turning around to the television preacher sometime, I, I find myself parking in on those that's going to give me an encouraging word. And there's so many songs out today, many of them on the radio are about encouraging you, keep your head up, it, everything's going to be all right. In fact, I read across a song that really, really spoke to me just a few weeks ago. I've been playing it over and over and over again until I get tired of it, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not there yet, though. And uh, it's written by, or it's sung by Mercy Me. And as we play a little bit of that, see if you can see yourself somewhere in this song. They say sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And right now, right now I'm losing back. Stood on this stage night after night Reminding the broken it'll be alright But right now, oh right now I just can't It's easy to say when there's nothing to bring me down But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now I know you're able and I know you can Save through the fire with your mighty hand But even if you don't My hope is you alone Did you identify with that? What is it that's going to take us and, and really close the misery gap? What is the key to it all? Well, the key to it all is very simple. It's, it's what you're trusting in. 
who's on the throne and what is on the throne of your life. And we've said this many times before we've been going through Psalms. We all have something on the throne. We all worship something. We all count on something and place something first in our life. I, I shared with you again the story of that Harry Potter movie where they're standing before, Harry is standing before the, the mirror of Erised, uh, spelled desire spelled backwards. So it's the mirror of desire. And he looks in to the mirror and he finds in the mirror him uh, looking at his parents and his, he and his parents are playing together. Now, the, the great, the wonder about that is that his parents are dead. Well, he calls Ron over and says, you wouldn't believe it. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm seeing my parents. And Ron says, no, I'm seeing myself as a great athlete and a hero. And their mentor explains to them, whatever you, this is a mirror of desire, Ira said, and whatever you see in the mirror is your greatest desire of life. It's really what's on the throne of your life. And so you and I receive Christ into our heart. And the very moment that we do that, we know we turn all we know about us and over to all we know about Christ. Problem is we don't know very much about ourselves and we don't know very much about Christ. And it's really a task. Maybe that's the wrong word, but it's kind of a task, feels like it, to keep Jesus Christ on the throne of our life. It's easier said than done. Here's the thing. If you have something else on the throne of your life, it's going to make you miserable. You know that. If money's on the throne, then you're going to what? Worry about money? You're going to stress out about money? You're going to uh, put money ahead of people. If someone in your life is on the throne of your life, they're going to hurt you in some way. Sooner or later, they're, they're, the hurt's going to be there. The wrong thing's going to be said. Or maybe that person's going to get in trouble and, and you're going to identify with them and think, oh my goodness, what, what am I going to do now? I'm worried and worried and worried and worried. And so whatever's on the throne, except for Jesus, whatever's on the throne is going to make you eventually bring about a misery index in your life. Jesus is the only master that is not a taskmaster. The truth shall set you free. Jesus Christ will set you free. He's the one, once he's on the throne of your life and he stays on the throne of your life, he's the one that's going to bring the joy in your life, the hope in your life, the love in your life that you, you and I long for in our life. Now the question is, how do we keep him up there? Psalm 103 tells us how to do that because David with all his struggles that he's gone through in the Psalms and all the, the struggles he's gone through in his real life, we can read about that in the books of Samuel. With all those things going on, he comes to the place in his life now where he knows the answer and he shares it with us. And so this morning, very quick and simple, he's going to share the answer, the key to having Jesus Christ stay on the throne of our life. What is that? Well, I want us to look at this psalm in three things, three questions. What do you need to see? Well, you need to see the truth. You need to see the answer. What do we need to remember? And how do we need to remember it? Look in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 103. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. By the way, if you forget to say the blessing over a meal sometime, you know, don't lose heart. You just say, hey, that's okay. I'm just claiming Psalm 103.1. Lord, bless the, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Okay, just a little tidbit there. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, this word bless has, some of your translations say praise. And so we don't want to get technical about it. But really, when we praise God, we praise God for who he is, 
When we bless God, we thank him for what he has done, and that's what David's doing. He's, he's thanking the Lord for what he's done. He says, I'm expressing a joyful gratitude to, to God in the innermost being in my soul. Then he looks at the, the flip side of that, where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits or blessings. He says, don't forget it. Remember what God has done for you. And we'll go over that in just a moment, why that's important. But the memory, the memory of things, think about it for just a minute. Sometimes, oftentimes, that's a controlling factor in our life. When we think about someone and we, we think about what they've, maybe what they've done to us or whatever, and we have a bitter heart against them, that controls the way we think toward them and therefore controls our emotions in the life. And so oftentimes, our memories are controlling factors in our life. And he's saying, don't forget, don't forget. Why? Because forgetting or, or remembering has something to do, an ingredient to what we need in order to keep Jesus on the throne. And what we need to keep Jesus on the throne of our life is simple trust in him. Now think about it for just a moment. Whatever's on the throne of your life, you're really showing confidence in that. That's why it's on the throne. You're worshiping that. You're putting that first in your life because you really believe your career is going to bring you satisfaction, peace, hope, and, and love, and all those other things in your life, or that money's going to do that, or that child's going to do that, or your mom or dad, whoever else is in your life. Those are the things. That, that one thing is going to bring the difference in your life, and, and therefore, you're going to place your confidence in that. So faith is the way that we keep Jesus on the throne. He says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Now that's, that's crucial. Notice this verse. It says, you believe that he exists, but also he is a rewarder rewarder of those who seek him. And so that's what, what, what it's saying is you're trusting in him. You're trusting that you keep him on the throne. You keep him first place in your life. Sooner or later, whatever the circumstances in your life are, he's going to bring a reward to your life. He's going to reward you for your faithfulness in trusting him. Now, why is the memory so important to that? Well, Os Guinness has said, and I've shared this with you, Os Guinness has said, faith stands, it's like a tension, and it stands between the no longer and the not yet. Now, what is the no longer? The no longer is what's in the past. And so faith relies on what's in the past. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of the prayers beginning with praising God and thanking God for something he's done in the past. And it propels them not to, you know, when I first read those prayers, I was thinking, well, they're just trying to butter up God. I guess that's how you pray. You butter up God. No, they're not trying to butter up God. What they're trying to do is rekindle their own faith. Think about what God's done. Look what God's done. I remember what, ha what God's done. So the thank yous, the gratitude of the heart leads us to believing something great for God in the future. Now, here's what Satan does. Satan comes along and tells us, look, what God has left out of your life. He's left out that, that child. He's left out that husband or wife. He's left out your success, how you count success. 
He has left out this and left out. He's failed you here. He's failed you there. It's like the song goes, hey, under some kind of stress, some kind of worry, you know, God can do it. God can wave his hand and make everything good. Why doesn't he do it? And Satan asks you, why doesn't he do that? If he's God, if you can really trust him, why doesn't he come through for the things that you expect and for the things that you want out of life? The great expectations. What do I expect God to do? And it all centers around most of the time some kind of blessing for us. But here, gratitude balances the scales. Satan is reminding us of what God has not given us And we're reminding ourselves what God has blessed us with. And we're grateful for that. And we begin to name those things. And whatever they are in our life, we name those things that propels us to believe God for the future. When we believe him for the future, he stays on the throne of our life as the object of our confidence, the object of our trust. And then that's going to lead away from misery and into joy. And so... As we look at this passage, he begins then in the next almost 20 verses, he begins to explain what he is grateful for. And what an example he gives us with these uh, seven or eight things, it looks like, you know, probably more than that, but I only have time to go over a few of them this morning. First of all, in verse three, one little phrase, who pardons, this is God, who blesses us, he pardons us of all iniquities, iniquities being sins. He forgives us of all of our sins. Forgiveness is the greatest gift of all. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And because of that, we can have a relationship with God. In fact, all this passage is centered around one thing. Verse 13, just as the father has compassion for his children, everything that God's done for us, he's done so we can call him father. So he can have that kind of relationship with us. And none of it happens without the forgiveness of sins. Notice in verse 9, he says this. He will not always strive or contend with us. Now, here's what it means by that. He's saying, look, the Spirit of God is the one who draws you to salvation. The Bible says in uh, John 16 that he convicts us of sin. And he convicts us of righteousness and judgment. And we're convicted of that. And we know in our heart that we we need to be saved. And maybe we push it and push it and push it back and push it back. And the Bible says he's not always going to contend with you. He's not only going to wrestle with you. He's offering you the free gift of forgiveness and salvation. He says, nor will he keep his anger forever. He he, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Now, he's talking here primarily really about the nation of Israel, but it applies so greatly to the New Testament. And I know that God had that in mind when he wrote those verses. He says, look, I've forgiven you and I I have come to you and said, I have not dealt with you in a fair way. Well, that sounds awful. No, he has not dealt with us in real justice as we count, as we count justice. He has not. Listen, if we are going to be held to the account of God's justice, none of us would make heaven. He says, look, you know, you don't want my justice. You want my mercy. You want my forgiveness. You want my grace. And he says, it's not justice here. It's mercy. It's always better than we deserve. And here he fi- we find out 
this, these great verses here in following. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the heaven, above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And this word fear means to have an awesome relationship with God, to treat him as awesome, to put him on the throne of our life because of respect and because we know that we can trust him. He says, as high as the heavens are, as high as the heavens. Then he says, as far as the east is from the west, horizontally, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. What he's saying is this. When Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins, he was nailed to the cross for our sins, his blood was payment for our sins. Once we have received Christ into our heart, he puts the, our sins as far as the east is from the west. They are remembered, the Bible says, against us no more. Thank you very much. Do I have another amen? amen? You see, the east and west never meet. That's what he's saying. They'll never meet again. I mean, here's Satan, you know, like Job. He comes to God now in the New Testament times, and he picks you out. He says, notice this guy right here. Notice that he lies. He has lied before. He's cheated before. He's lusted before. He's been angry without a cause before. And he goes over this list. And the Lord looks at him and says, looks at Satan and says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember any of that. Because he's remembered your sins against you no more. Now, when you and I do that, when we don't remember somebody's sins anymore, we think to ourselves, well, okay, this person's wronged me. How can I ever forget what he's done? Now, I've forgiven him, but how can I forget it? What does biblical for forgetfulness mean? It means that you no longer hold that person accountable. You don't hold that person, that, that sin against that person anymore. For example, when you think about them, you don't relive what they did to you. The emotions don't get, you don't get caught up in all the emotions and relive it. If you're still reliving it, then you're holding that sin against them still. God does not relive your sin. He does not hold any of us accountable anymore for our sins because Jesus Christ has nailed them to the cross once and for all 2,000 years ago. And as far as the east is from the west, and east and west will never meet, he has placed our sins away from us and he's put them in the bottom of the ocean. He's put them in, in the grave and he says, no digging right there. There's just no digging. You, you and I can never be accused again. Revelation 12.10 says Satan is accuser of the brethren. He tries to make us feel guilty. But nevertheless, God says, I have forgiven you. But then notice what he says. He says, I've healed, uh, who heals of, all disease, of, of your diseases. He doesn't say all of them. But he says, when you get healed, it's because of the Lord. Now, I've been healed before. I was a diabetic when I was younger and I was healed. God still heals today. But you ask the question, why does he always forgive sins? And at the same time, not always healing of people. Now, most commentators would say, most preachers would say this is more talking about spiritual healing anyway. But just take physical healing for just a moment because it still does happen. And so why? Well, Derek Kidner has said this. Sin destroys our relationship with God all the time. It's always God's will that we're forgiven. It's always God's will that we trust the cross. Always. However, he also goes on to say, while suffering may deepen our relationship with God. So it's not always God's will for our hurt and suffering to be taken away. 
because those things sometimes can mold us and make us into the person that we need to be. They can mature us, not only as a human being, but also in Christ as well. But when we're healed, we're healed of the Lord. Verse 5, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. All of us want that. Isn't that what we want in this life? We want, we want to be satisfied in this life. We want God to do something in our life, and as he's on the throne of our life, we want to know that he's done something special for us. The thief, the Bible says, comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. In fact, he really sums it up here in verse 4 where he says, who redeems your life from the pit. Redemption, that means to buy out of something. The pit, this is the word in the Old Testament, Sheol. In the New Testament, it's Gehenna, means hell. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The crowns themselves give a picture of heaven. So notice what verse 3 says. He says, first of all, he pardons, then he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. Here the Bible says, God has done something great and wonderful in our life. You know, just a few minutes ago, I, I mentioned that we, we were able to give away a couple of hundred uh, meals to the homeless during the Easter season. And um, a lot of people, you know, really respond to that. They, they really do. And you see a homeless man on the side of the road, all of us feel something for him. And I'm wondering why that person versus some, maybe another person that's suffering in a different way. I think we identify with the homeless guy because all of us, especially when we were in a lost condition or we even have Christ off the throne of our life, we're seeking out a home. We feel, we feel spiritually homeless. And we, we feel like something's going on in our heart that we yearn for, that there's a satisfaction in the life that's just not there. And so we look at the homeless man and we feel for him because as he is not, doesn't have a roof over his head physically, doesn't have a, a place to call his home on this earth, we're seeking out a home. As Abraham was, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, we're seeking out a home, a heavenly one, one that is called, we can call God our Father. He says, you've been redeemed. You've been bought out. And that's, that summarizes everything right there. You know, we, uh, homeless man, he comes up maybe to a pawn broker, pawn shop, and he has one thing left, his watch. And he pulls off his watch, and it's not this uh, Timex, whatever I have right here, but um, it's gold, you know, it's really an expensive watch, gold watch. His father gave it to him. It's the last thing in his possession. And he turns it over to the pawnbroker because he needs food. And uh, the pawnbroker says, look, you know, you can come back and you can, you can redeem this. You can buy it back for the same uh, money or, you know, plus a little bit that you can, uh, uh, that, that I'm giving you. And he gives him just a penance, you know, for the watch. Well, the homeless man uh, kind of miscalculates. And he spends his money on, on food and some, maybe some other things. And he's broke again. And he, it's time for him to redeem the watch. And he goes to the man and he begs him. He says, well, won't you give me another day? Won't you give me another week? Let's, let's renegotiate this thing. Would you give me some more money? And the pawnbroker says, no, 
we made a deal. And a deal's a deal. You can't redeem it. I'm going to put it up for sale. And the homeless man walks down the street the next day, looks into the shop window, sees his father's watch for sale for about 10 times the money that he was paid for it. It's redeemable, but at a high cost and not redeemable by the pauper, by the homeless man. We're like that homeless man seeking out a better place, seeking out a home, and we need to be redeemed. We need to be redeemed, but it costs a high price, and we cannot redeem ourselves. And the blood of Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was enough to redeem us at that high cost. We look at this passage, and we think to ourselves, what is God's goal in all this? He wants, us, he wants to be on the throne of our life. He wants to be our, our heavenly father. Verse 13, just as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. Now, we, we know that that's us. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Now, many of you have not maybe heard of Billy Graham. He's about 95, 96 years old now. The greatest evangelist of the 20, 20th century and maybe the, the one who's led more people to Christ than any other person that's ever lived. And he was asked the question, and this is about 10 years ago. He was asked the question, what surprised you most about life? And his answer was the brevity of it. It went by so fast. It was like here today and gone tomorrow, like, like dust in the wind. And God knows that. And God knows that we need a home more than what we have here. We need a, a heavenly father, not just an earthly father. We need satisfaction in the soul now. We need fulfillment in this life right now. We need to have our life count for something besides ourselves. We need to be counting in the life of other people by affecting their life for the cause of Jesus Christ. He knows all this. He's willing to do that. He just says, look, just trust me. Put your confidence in me. He says in verse 17, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. And fear has to do with that, that awesomeness of God on the throne of our life, trusting him with our life and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. We say, well, well, pastor, now wait a minute. What are you saying that, that God's not our father? Well, there's two different types, you might say, of father. You know, you've seen the movies before where the guy comes up and says, look, I, I know I haven't been around for 20 years, but I'm your father. And he says, no, you may have helped give birth to me, but you've never been a father to me. It's one thing to be God's creation. It's another thing to be his child. And he's saying here the only ones that can call him father are those in that covenant relationship with him. What is that covenant relationship? That's us trusting Christ as our Savior and Lord. And he says in verse uh, uh, 18, and remember his precepts to do them. When Jesus is the Lord of our life, we're going we're gonna to do his will in our life. You say, well, you know, that takes care of the past and maybe a little bit of the present. But you know, Pastor, my problem is, is the future. 
I mean, after all, you know, things don't always work out in the future. Yes, they do. No, no, no. They don't always work out in the future. Really, I know. Yeah, they don't work out. I've trusted Christ before. I haven't been on the throne of my life. And I've had these expect, your what, expectations? Yeah, I've had my own expectations, and they just didn't work out. It always works out. It always works out according to the plan of God to do his will. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, nothing can happen to you unless God wills it. It just can't. Why? How do I know that? Because of the last point here in our outline this morning, and that is how do we need to remember? It says in verse 19, how do we know? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. How do I know I can trust God? Because he rules over everything. He is the sovereign God, the one who has died for me, the one who has resurrected on the third day, the one who has satisfied my life, redeemed us, forgiven us is the sovereign God of the universe who rules over all. He says he keeps his word. Bless the Lord, you, as, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all you, his hosts, who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his and all the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord. As he finishes up, oh, my soul. We have a covenant relationship with him by receiving him into our heart. Verse 21, we, we walk with him. The problem is, look, look back with me real quickly. There's a, there's a problem here because in verse 2 he says, forget none of his benefits. That's what he starts off. Everything about this is not forgetting. He said, I want you to remember. Why is it that he calls us to remember? He calls us to remember because we have a tendency to forget. We do. And sometimes we kind of choose to forget. Somehow, because of our expectations and the emotions that are involved and all of the expectations that we have in life, we have a tendency to forget. But also those people who don't know the Lord, the reason why they don't know the Lord is because they forget. They don't remember. It's amazing that about 10 years ago, I looked up a statistic, and I was very surprised to note that America uh, claimed to have about 5% atheists or agnostics, those who don't believe in God at all. But today, after years and years and years of remaining about the same, today it's 15%. It's kind of like become popular to be a person who just doesn't remember God doesn't forget, just forgets God. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. Romans 1 tells us that all of us innately know that there's a God. That's what it says. God puts that knowledge in our heart. Not only that, but we look at the sea and the trees, the Bible says, and the natural things of life, and we think, oh, there, there's a, there must be a God out there somewhere. You don't have to teach a five-year-old there's a God. They already know. You have to teach them over a period of time that there's not one or they become, as later in life, so much into a wrong lifestyle, they don't want to be held accountable to God. They don't want to be guilty uh, before God. And so it's easier to forget God. And that's what happens. We just forget. There's a movie uh, that came out in 1947 called um, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Now, that's not the TV show that came out later. This is an old movie, 
and black and white. I think it was one of those movies that didn't have a soundtrack to it, that kind of thing. And um, Mrs. Muir was a widow woman who also had a husband to leave her. And if, this, if I remember the story, so she had someone to leave her and then a husband to die. And now she was living in this big house. And there was nobody else living there except for a ghost. Played by, I think, Rex Harrison and a really suave, debonair guy. You know, lifetime movie type guy. You know, always said the right things. And, um, and so he, he was there and uh, they fell in love. Now, there's one problem to this, and the problem is obvious. He's a ghost. He's dead. And so it's kind of hard to have a relationship with a dead guy. You know, it really is. And so he recognizes that. He recognizes the love he has for her and decides one day that he's going to leave. But he doesn't want her to be hurt. So he causes her somehow to forget about him altogether. But he also notes that unless she wants to forget, she won't be able to. He leaves and she forgets. She forgets because she doesn't want the hurt. She forgets because she doesn't want to feel that pain again. And so often in this life, we just forget. But at the end of the story, he comes back. She's old by now. And he comes to her and he says, I made a mistake. I should have never left. And her memory comes back. There's a many movies out about Jesus and about his life, dying on the cross, being resurrected. One particular movie uh, was kind of amazing, really, at the, really in, a great insight. He was hanging on the cross, and instead of saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? What an insight. That God would forget his son, really to ignore, to just forsake him, to ignore him, to make him as insignificant for a while. He forgot him so we would never have to be forgotten. And the same one that many times we have forgotten has never forgotten us. Never has forgotten us. How do we get Jesus on the throne? Receiving him into our heart. How do we, how do we keep him on the throne? By trusting him each and every day because we remember all the blessings that he had. And we count those blessings, and we're grateful for what he's done for us. And we discount the things that Satan's saying about how he's held back from us because the only thing he's ever held back for us is something that will take us off the road, the right road. And so we turn to a sovereign Lord who's done it all for us already, and we know, we know in our heart, and we don't forget, we know in our heart we can trust him with the future. As we bow our heads before the Lord, uh, maybe this morning you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord. He's, he's never been at the very forefront of the Lord of your life. You've never given him your heart. It's always belonged to something or someone else. This morning, know that he has not forgotten you. And you say, well, I've sort of forgotten him in a way. 
but he hasn't forgotten you. He remembers you, and even now he remembers you. And if that's the prayer of your heart, I want to give my heart to Christ. I want to invite you right now to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. I want you to be the savior of my soul, the Lord of my life. I want to put you on the throne because I know that's the ticket not to be miserable. And that's the ticket to glorify you. And that's what I want to do. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.